24, we will read verses 1 through 14. Now hear God's word. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall, fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The grass withers, the flower fades. God's word stands forever. And this is the word that is preached unto you today. You may be seated, and as you are, let's pray together as we come before God's holy word today. Once again, our God and our Father, we thank you for the high privilege of being in your presence. We thank you for the freedom that we have here in this place, in this country, to gather together in a public place and to worship you without fear of reprisal. Father, we praise you for your providence as we come into your presence, and we praise you most of all for the blood of Jesus Christ that makes it even possible for us to draw near to your throne of grace without fear of condemnation, to commune with you and to receive the pure and true food of your living and active word. So Father, as we come to it this morning, we ask, would you help us? Holy Spirit, we pray, be with us and illuminate the meaning of your word to our minds and sear it into our consciences too. That, Father, we may not just learn intellectually something that is true from your word today, that we might not just be hearers, but that it, would, that it would continue the work of transforming us by the renewing of our lives, that we might not just be hearers, but become more and more doers who live faithfully to you during the time that you have ordained for us in this world. And so, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So if there's one subject that people 
who read God's Word are interested in, it is the end times, right? When is the end going to come? What's going to happen when the end comes? What signs will there be in the world that it's imminent? And there are all kinds of questions like those that swirl around in the, in the minds of God's people as we, as we sojourn as pilgrims in this world, looking, like Hebrews says, for the better country, the eternal kingdom that God has promised to bring to us. And of course, we all know that there's no shortage of, of answers to all of those kinds of questions. And that there are a number of differing perspectives and beliefs about what God's Word really teaches about all these things. So wouldn't it be great, like if only, right? Wouldn't it be great if, if Jesus' own disciples during the time when Jesus was, was still walking on this earth and they were hanging out with Him and spending time with Him day in and day out, wouldn't it have been great if they had asked Him questions like those questions about the end? And if He had answered those questions directly? And if somebody had written all of that down? And if it had gotten preserved over the last 2,000 years and translated from the Greek that Jesus spoke into the English that we speak in and read and understand so that we could actually read and understand what Jesus had to say to His disciples about the end. Wouldn't that be great? Welcome to Matthew chapter 24, because this is precisely what Jesus does. His disciples asked Him a series of questions very specifically about the end The end, not just these last days that we've been living in according to Scripture since Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, but the end of these last days. They asked him a series of questions specifically about the end of the end, and he told them exactly what they needed to know about the end of this world and about what kinds of things are going to happen to signal the end of the end and about what all of that means for our lives in the world in the meantime. And I wanted to take a few weeks together with you all to work through this chapter and also the parable at the beginning of Matthew 25 in connection, again, with our ongoing study in the minor prophets in the Old Testament, because as we've seen a number of times now as we've been studying those Old Testament books of prophecy, so often the immediate historical context that those prophets were writing in thousands of years ago, the the circumstances that were going on at that specific time that the prophets were talking about in their prophecies, including God's judgment on His enemies way back then, and the merciful deliverance and and redemption of His people way back then. Those things were all designed by God in His great, mysterious, sovereign orchestration of every event that goes on in this world. They were designed by God to be historical anticipations of the far greater and ultimate judgment and deliverance and redemption that he's had planned for the whole world since before the beginning of the whole world. 
And so we saw that in Obadiah. The, the judgment against Edom was a, was a type, a foreshadowing of the final judgment that would come on the day of the Lord that, that Obadiah himself spoke of. And so was the deliverance that would come and the redemption that would come to Jerusalem a type and a foreshadowing of the great and ultimate deliverance and salvation and redemption that will come when Jesus returns and makes all things new. So the prophets commonly refer to that ultimate coming day of judgment and and deliverance and redemption as the day of the Lord. We've seen it multiple times now as we've been studying those books of Old Testament prophecy. And we've seen that when we come into the New Testament, it sheds further light. It gives us further revelation from God to understand more about what that day of the Lord is. And the New Testament reveals to us that the coming day of the Lord, when when all that final ultimate judgment is going to destroy everything that has been corrupted by sin in this world, which is everything, And when every trace of wickedness and unrighteousness and injustice will be wiped away, and when God will make all things new, new heavens and a new earth, where only righteousness dwells, where there's only peace forever, and where all of His redeemed people, right, the bride of Christ made holy in His holy blood and righteousness, will dwell in the presence of the glory of God for all of eternity, the New Testament reveals to us that this coming day of the Lord will come with specifically the return, visibly, bodily, the return of Jesus Christ. That's when that will all happen. The trumpet of God will sound from heaven. Jesus will return in the same way that He left when He ascended into heaven on a cloud in the sight visibly of all of His disciples in the first chapter of the book of Acts. He said, I'm going to come back exactly the same way I left. And that will be the end of this present world and this current age of spiritual darkness and wickedness and death. And it will be the beginning of a new world and the age that is to come, which will be an age of perfect and incorruptible and unending righteousness and peace and life. And we all want that more than anything in this world. So... When will all that happen? And what's going to happen in this world to signal us that it's about to happen? Those are the very questions that Jesus' disciples asked Him in Matthew chapter 24, 2,000 years ago. And this chapter contains Jesus' answers. Remember, though, what I said just a minute ago, that in this chapter, after the disciples asked Jesus these questions, He told them, not necessarily what they wanted to hear. He told them exactly what they needed to know about the end of this world, about what kind of things will happen to signal the end, and about what all of that means for our lives in this world in the meantime, which is actually the most important point. Jesus did not tell them everything they wanted to know. And His answers were not constrained by their curiosity. And his explanations weren't determined by their expectations. Because the things that they were most curious about actually missed the most important point. And the things that they expected, the things that they assumed, were actually out of step with the realities that Jesus himself understood. 
And so a lot of what Jesus teaches them here in this chapter is meant to correct some wrong assumptions and understandings and expectations and reorient them away from the things that they were most curious about and toward the things that really mattered the most. And that's what we're going to learn as we take in Jesus' teachings here in this chapter over the next several weeks. It's all too easy for us, just like those disciples of Jesus 2,000 years ago, to let our curiosity about when the end is going to come and about what's going to happen when the end comes and about the things in this world that are going to signal the coming of the end, to let our curiosity about all those things take priority in our minds and in our lives over what Jesus tells us we ought to be doing in this world while we wait for the end and for His second coming. And that's one of Jesus' main points in this chapter. He's going to tell us what really ultimately matters for our lives here and now. He's going to correct this tendency and and refocus us and, and redefine our priorities for us so that we don't define them according to our own curiosity instead. And then it's also easy for us, just like those disciples of Jesus 2,000 years ago, to assume certain things which affect our understanding and our expectation and even our own interpretation of Jesus' words about what's going to happen when the end comes. To assume certain things that are actually out of step with the realities that God Himself has foreknown and foreordained, again, since before the foundations of this world were ever even laid in the beginning. And that's another one of Jesus' main points, to correct wrong assumptions and help us think more clearly about what lies ahead of us for the end of the world and the end of this age so that we can be ready for it, prepared for it, and so that we can live our lives in the meantime according to His priorities while we wait for His return. So, let's look together at the first part of Matthew 24 here today. We're going to look at verses 1 through 14. And in these verses, Jesus teaches us two main things. In verses 1 through 8, He teaches His disciples about the characteristics of this whole age that we're living in now still, which spans the time between His resurrection from the dead and His second coming sometime in our future. What are the... What are the typical characteristics of the world and of this age that we should expect to see going on all throughout this age, all the way up until the end? That's verses 1 through 8. And then in verses 9 through 14, he does tell us some particular signs of what things in this world will be like just before the very end comes and Jesus returns. Now, all of this teaching that Jesus gives to his disciples about the end of the world, it's all occasioned here in Matthew chapter 24 by this series of questions that the disciples asked Jesus in the first three verses. There's three of them. And those three questions that they ask him were prompted by what Jesus had just said to them in the end of Matthew chapter 23, just just above this chapter. In the closing verses 
of Matthew chapter 23, Jesus was in Jerusalem with His disciples. They're at the temple. And Jesus knew what was going to happen very soon. He knew that the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem were going to arrest Him and have Him tried and have Him crucified. And He knew what God's holy, divine, just response was going to be to that horrible outpouring of wickedness when they crucified Jesus. And he knew all of that, of course, because he's God. Jesus is the incarnate God. He's the second person of the Holy Trinity. And so knowing what was going to happen, he knew what God's response was going to be. He knew what would happen to Jerusalem because of all of the godlessness and treachery that was festering there. And because he knew what was going to happen to Jerusalem, and because he loved this place, and he loved the people in this place, but he knew that they were going to receive judgment from God, he lamented over Jerusalem at the end of chapter 23. And in that lament, he said, referring to the temple in Jerusalem, he says, verse 38, see your house is left to you desolate. The temple is going to become desolate. And that's a word that means abandoned, deserted, empty. The judgment of God in the wake of the murder of Jesus on the cross was going to fall on Jerusalem and specifically and particularly on the temple in such a way that it would cause the utter desolation of the temple. And that absolutely shocked Jesus' disciples, of course. So, in verse 1 of chapter 24, they left the temple and as they're walking away, the disciples, it says, pointed out to Jesus the buildings of the temple. There were a number of buildings on top of the big platform that made up the temple complex, and they point these out to Jesus. So what does that mean? Well, see, they've just been there, right? They're not, they're not just saying to Jesus, oh, hey, have you seen the temple? Of course he's seen the temple. He's been there a lot. They were just there. They're not just saying, hey, check it out. What they're doing is in response to that statement up in chapter 23 that Jesus made that the temple is going to be made totally desolate. What they're doing is saying, but how can that be? Look at it. Look how massive it is. Look how magnificent it is, Jesus. Look at its beauty. Look at its strength. How could that ever be made desolate? To which Jesus then again responded, verse 2 now of chapter 24, referring again to the temple and all the magnificent buildings in the temple complex. He said, you see all these, don't you? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another which will not be thrown down. And again, that is absolutely and utterly shocking and devastating to his disciples that the temple's not just going to be made empty and abandoned and desolate it's going to become desolate because it will be so absolutely destroyed that not a single stone would be left to stand upon another stone the great temple of god the magnificent splendor of it there in jerusalem would be completely torn to the ground amazing shocking to them unthinkable to the disciples, but it happened in the year 70 A.D. 
The Romans came in and did exactly what Jesus said they would do. And to this day, there's not a stone left of that temple. So in verse 3, they're up on the Mount of Olives, which is a fair distance away from the temple. So it's like a 30 to 45 minute walk now from where they were when they heard this from Jesus. So while they're making this 30 minute, 45 minute hike up the Mount of Olives, they're trying to digest what Jesus has just told them that the temple's going to be completely torn down and destroyed and made desolate. And a bunch of questions start to pop into their minds. And there were some assumptions also that they made which framed the way that they asked those questions to Jesus. And his responses in the rest of the chapter, like I said, correct those wrong assumptions and answer the questions. So let's see how. Take a look at these three questions that they ask of Jesus after hiking up to the top of the Mount of Olives and contemplating the destruction and desolation of the temple that Jesus had prophesied. Verse 3, they ask him, first question, when will these things be? When is the temple going to be destroyed and made totally desolate? And then, and here's where it gets interesting, second question they ask him, what will be the sign of your coming? And thirdly, what will be the sign of the end of the age? And those last two questions are directly connected, right? All three of them are directly connected in the disciples' minds. You can see the assumption they're making, right? It comes out especially in those last two questions. If something as massively traumatic and catastrophic as the destruction and desolation of the temple is going to happen, then that must mean the end of the world. It must be in their minds that when Christ returns to bring the end of the world about, it would be at the same time as the temple being destroyed and made desolate. And assuming that, that all these things are connected in time together immediately, they want to know when. So if they had just asked the first question, when's the temple going to be destroyed and made desolate? Jesus could have just told them when. Because it was 37 years later, in the year 70 AD. Jesus could have just said that, except that their first question was connected to the other two. And assumed that all those things, the temple's destruction and Jesus' return and the end of the age, all those things were going to happen at the same time. But see, they were mistaken about that. In that assumption, the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple would not happen at the same time as the second coming and the end of the world and the end of this evil age. And in Matthew 24, what Jesus is doing is is spelling out that there's going to be a big, long period of time between the temple's destruction in 70 AD and his second coming and the end of the world. And he's teaching them, and he's teaching us, what we can expect in this world during that long period of time, what things are characteristic of life in this dark, rebellious, sinful world during this evil age that we're still living in. And then he teaches them also about what will happen at the end. And what he's teaching here is that there's a connection between the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, 
and the end of the world that is still to come. There's a connection between them. It's just not a connection in time. It's not a direct, immediate connection chronologically. But there is a connection, and it's the same kind of connection that we've been seeing from the Old Testament prophets. It's a a connection like the connection in Obadiah between the judgment of God that was proclaimed there against Edom and the ultimate judgment that would come many, many years later when Christ would return and pour out judgment on the entire world. There's a, the big theological word that we used last week was proleptic. There's a proleptic connection. All of the historical events of judgment and deliverance in the Old Testament anticipated, foreshadowed, were types of the great judgments and redemption that were to come with Christ and the end of the world. And so see, the fall of of Jerusalem and the temple, it's the same. When the Romans came in and, and, and sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple and tore it down, that's a, a type and an anticipation of the greater judgment that is to come. And, and in fact, that event in 70 AD is not even the main subject of this chapter at all. Jesus doesn't even spend much time focusing on that specific event, event because his big focus is the coming judgment against the whole world when Christ returns which the destruction of the temple anticipates and foreshadows in God's sovereign design for history. And his primary emphasis is in answer to the second two questions that the disciples asked him. What are going to be the signs of your coming? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? So, nutshell version, here's what Jesus is saying in this whole chapter. He's saying, yes... The temple will be destroyed. And when it is, when the Romans come storming in, here's what you need to do. You need to make sure you're not in there. (laughs) Because if you're in there, then you're going to die when the Romans come and destroy the temple. you got to get out of there. you got to run. you got to flee. But all of that will just be a foreshadowing of a much greater time of trouble at the very end of this age which will all end with my second coming and the pouring out of judgment on the whole entire world, destroying it all, just like Jerusalem will be destroyed. And you need to be ready for that so that you can escape that judgment too and not get caught up and destroyed eternally. See? This is what chapter 24 is all about. So here's how Jesus begins to answer these questions that the disciples ask. And in verses 4 through 8, he starts not by directly answering their questions about the signs of his coming in the end of the world, but by identifying for them some typical characteristic marks and, and, and qualities of this whole present age which they're living in, which we're still living in, and, and we should expect to see all throughout this age up until the end. But these things that he's talking about in verses 4 through 8 don't in and of themselves constitute signs of the end. He, here's how we know that. It's just Jesus' clear words. The first thing that Jesus does in answer to the question, what will the signs of your coming and the end be, 
the first thing is to tell them what the signs are not. Don't get confused by these things and assume that those are the signs of the end. Look at what he says right here in verse 4. Jesus, what are going to be the signs of your coming in the end? And he answers them, see that no one leads you astray. First of all, don't go the wrong way. Because many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see that you are not alarmed for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. But all of these are but the beginning of the birth pangs. Not the end, they're the beginning of the birth pangs. They're not signs of the end. So, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to try to lead Christ's disciples astray from the real truth about the second coming and the end of the world. Many of them will even claim deceptively to be Christ. And believing that lie, many people will be led astray. All kinds of people have already done that, and they've done that all throughout the past 2,000 years. And they continue to do that. Lots and lots and lots of people. Jewish rabbis have claimed to be the true Messiah and then died and proven themselves wrong. Eastern religious gurus have claimed to be the reincarnation of Jesus and then died and been proven wrong. Crazy doomsday cult leaders have claimed to be Jesus come again. Charles Manson even claimed at one point to be Jesus. People in insane asylums claim to be Jesus. There have been, there will be, all throughout this present age before Jesus returns, there will be many imposters who try to lure people into false belief and away from the true Christ. And so the first thing that Jesus does in teaching about the end is to warn his own people to beware of the imposters, to beware of the false teaching, to beware of the deception, all of which, see, are, are, are characteristic of this whole present age that we're living in for the past 2,000 years so far. And all of which we can expect to encounter in this world at any given time. And when we do, we shouldn't fall for it, right? If someone says, I'm Jesus, we shouldn't go, oh, he's here. Because we'll know when he's here because he's going to come back the same way that he left. There's going to be a, a loud trumpet and the whole sky is going to rip open and he's going to come descending on a cloud with the whole host of heaven. You're not going to mistake him. He's not going to be walking down the Pacific Garden Mall suddenly saying, I'm Jesus, and you should be tempted to believe him. But that is going to happen. You're going to meet those people. You're going to meet people claiming to be Christ, and, and they're not, obviously. And, and when you do, you should know that's not a sign that he's coming. It's a normal part of life in this wicked, spiritually dark age and world that we live in. And then secondly, Jesus says this, still warning about being led astray, he says in verse 6, and not only the false Christ and false teachings, and you're going to hear all about wars and rumors of wars, right? Political turmoil and conflict and violence and bloodshed and upheaval in this world. But he says, when you see that, See that you are not alarmed because this must take place, but the end is not yet. He couldn't be more clear. 
See that? The operative words there are not yet. Wars and rumors of wars and violence and turmoil and political upheavals of all kinds are not signs of the second coming of Jesus or that the end of the world is at hand. They are normal parts of life in this sin-cursed world that we live in. And they always have been. Over the past 2,000 years, even if we just limit it to the, the age of the church, all throughout this present age that we're living in, there have been countless wars. Some of them have involved the entire world. Nations have risen up against nations. Kingdoms have risen up against kingdoms. And they continue to do so still. And they will continue to do so until Jesus returns. I'll tell you what, during World War I and World War II, the whole world looked like it was going to collapse. And and lots and lots of people thought that things were so bad that this must mean that the end of the world has come and Jesus is about to come. And they taught that and they preached that. And it wasn't true because Jesus is saying the end has not yet. This isn't a sign in and of itself of the second coming. Today, with everything going on in China and Russia and Ukraine and other places in the world, North Korea, what's what's going on? What's going to happen? We hear rumors of war all the time. And a lot of people think, This is all a surefire sign that the end is upon us. But Jesus says, don't be too alarmed. The end has not yet come. War by itself, no matter how bad it is, is not necessarily a sign of the second coming of Jesus. So he's clearly teaching this to us. His disciples, us included, we should not let wars, even the really big ones that involve the whole world, trouble us to the point of thinking that the end has come. In this world that you're living in, Jesus says, these things just must take place. This is a characteristic of this age. It's typical, a hallmark of the dark, evil, godless age and world that we live in. And so when you see these wars, when you hear rumors of wars, don't be overly alarmed. The end is not yet. They're not signs that the end is upon us. Neither, verse 7, are natural disasters. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are just the beginning of the birth pains. There have always been famines, right? There have always been earthquakes and all kinds of other natural disasters all over the world, all throughout history over the past 2,000 years since Jesus ascended. And there still will be until He comes. And the reason why isn't because it's a sign of His coming. It's, the, it's, it's a hallmark of this age because the whole creation has been subjected to futility, Paul explains in Romans 8. It's all groaning because it's been subjected to decay, the decay of sin and the curse. It's typical. All the famines, all the earthquakes, all the hurricanes, all the wildfires, all the floods. It's typical of the world that we're living in None of it's a sign that the end is upon us. Instead, Jesus tells us, clear as day, all these things are just, not the end, but the beginning of the birth pains of this world and this age. Connected, yes, to the end, but far off. We can expect these things to continue as they always have all the way up until the end does come. But by themselves, those things don't signal the end. And Jesus doesn't want us to get confused about that or get led astray by people who claim that these are the signs of the end and that we better all go sell all our property and rack up all our credit cards 
right? And live in a tent and wait because Jesus is about to come. Don't listen to people like that. They're deceiving you. And they will lead you astray. Jesus wants us to recognize that in this world, no matter how long it lasts, this age that we're in, no matter how long it it is until he comes, in this world we will have tribulation. There will always be deception and false teaching. There will always be wars and rumors of wars. There will always be earthquakes and famines and all kinds of other natural upheavals. And through it all, we're going to have to persevere until the end. We're going to have to not fall away until the end. And as we wait, we've got to address all those kinds of things as Christians by faith in Him. We've got to confront the false teaching. We've got to expose the false teaching. We've got to make sure that we don't compromise on, on the truth and be led astray into the false teaching. We've got to stand firm when we encounter the false teaching. And when we hear about wars and when we see wars and when we hear rumors of wars, we've got to live our own lives, the Bible tells us, peaceably. Not causing conflict, not contributing to conflict, but but seeking to be peacemakers and promoting peace however we can. Doing whatever depends on us to live at peace with others, he says in Romans. And when we see natural disasters like earthquakes and hurricanes and floods and famines and all of that, We have to be prepared to minister mercy to those who are affected by all that stuff. That's what it looks like. See, Jesus is saying this is what it looks like. This is what the world's going to look like. And this is what it has to look like for you to live in this world as disciples of Jesus until his coming. And the point is this. We've got to be much more focused on that. What we're supposed to be doing now than on curiously and speculatively wondering and assuming that whenever we see wars and earthquakes and upheaval, it must be a sign that the end is upon us. Don't get distracted from what you're supposed to be doing here. The end is not yet. The end has not yet come. The birth pains have only just begun. Stand firm, stay sober, stay faithful. This is what matters most. This is the big priority that Jesus is proclaiming all throughout this whole chapter. And this is his message. This is the message he starts with in verses 4 through 8. And only then does he come in verses 9 through 14 to start unpacking what kinds of things do and will signify that the end is not far off. And as always with God's word, The way to understand these verses is to understand them together with other passages in God's Word that God has given in order to shed even more light on the same truth that Jesus is revealing here. This is how the Scripture works, right? He doesn't just give us one cryptic Scripture and then we're supposed to try to imagine all of the potential... No, He gives us all of Scripture and Scripture interprets Scripture, right? Because all Scripture is God's Word and because His Word is complete... We don't need any more. And because the complete Word of God is sufficient for everything that we do need to understand and know, Scripture interprets Scripture. And if there's a part of Scripture that's a little less clear to us, there are other parts that are more clear which help us understand. So I want you to think back, and this is why we've been doing this this way for several months now, 
I want you to think back to another place in Scripture that we studied together recently in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 20. Remember? John saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding a key to the bottomless pit of hell, and a chain. And that angel seized the dragon, Satan, and bound him with that chain for a thousand years. Specifically so, it says that Satan could not deceive the nations and gather them together to surround all the Christians and and try to destroy the church and eradicate all the Christians from the planet. Jesus wasn't going to let him do that. And then John said that after the thousand year period, Satan had to be let loose for a little while in order to come out and do just that, to deceive the nations and gather them together for battle and surround all the saints of God so they had nowhere to go, nowhere to escape, to try to destroy them all. And we learned that, because Scripture interprets Scripture, that this thousand-year period of time can't possibly happen after the second coming of Jesus. Because, remember, Revelation 19 tells us that when Jesus comes, here's what He's going to do. He's going to take all the saints, all the believers, all the redeemed Christians up out of this world, and then they'll jo- will join Him in destroying all of the evildoers in the world. All of them. And there won't be any left. They'll all be corpses and the birds will all come and feast on their flesh. That's what chapter 19 says. So the thousand year period has to happen before that second coming of Jesus because after Jesus returns, there's not going to be anyone left in the world for Satan to deceive or gather together for war against the saints. And there won't even be any saints. They'll all have been taken out when Jesus returns too. So the thousand years happens before the second coming of Jesus. And we learned that just like the key that the angel held in his hand and the chain that the angel used to bind Satan can't be literal physical things that you could go down and buy at the hardware store because Satan is a, 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 an immaterial, invisible, spiritual being and, and physical chains don't do it. They're completely 100% ineffective in binding a spiritual being. The chain and the key are symbols of the power and authority that God and the angel wield over Satan to bind him during the thousand years before Jesus comes. In the same way, the number 1,000 itself isn't a a countable, calculable number of years. It's used in Revelation 20 exactly like it's used in all kinds of other places in the Bible. It's used even like we use it a lot of times, idiomatically. I saw that movie a thousand times. No, you didn't. You saw it like six times. I, I just mean I saw it a lot. I've heard this a thousand times. No, you haven't. Well, I just mean a lot. That's, that's exactly what it means. It refers to a long period of time prior to Jesus' second coming, where Satan is bound and prevented from deceiving all of the nations to gather together and try to surround the church and destroy the church of Jesus Christ. And, because Scripture interprets Scripture, we saw from another place in Matthew chapter 12, 
where Jesus uses the same exact word with reference to Satan. He uses the same word bind that's used in Revelation 20, talking about binding Satan all the way back when Jesus was walking on the earth. And he teaches us that that it all refers to this period of time now between his first coming and his second coming, this long period of time that's going to be filled with deception and false teaching and wars and famines and earthquakes and global upheavals and Satan will be prowling around like a roaring lion and shooting flaming arrows at us, Paul says in Ephesians. But he won't be able to stop the gospel from spreading like wildfire all around the world, or, or he won't be able to deceive the nations of the world, all of them, to the extent that they'll join together in an all-out war against the church and try to eradicate all the Christians from the face of the earth. There in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus cast out a demon. That's what he did. When the Pharisees said, the only ability that he has to do that comes from Satan which, as Jesus pointed out, was a stupid thing to say because Satan can't be divided against himself. Satan can't succeed by casting out his own demons out of people. And Jesus said, here's what's really happening. What's really happening is Jesus says, I have come into Satan's house, right? Like, if I'm going to break into your house and rob you, the first thing I'm going to do is is like tie you up. So that you can't call the police, so that you can't go get a baseball bat and whack me, so that you can't hinder me. I'm going to tie you up, and then I'm going to like look through all your closets, and don't worry, I'm not going to actually do this. But that, right, that's what you, you bind the person who owns the house so that then you can rob the house. And Jesus says, that's what I've done. I've come into Satan's house. I've come into this world, and I've bound him by casting out the demon. I'm binding him so that I can plunder the house. And plundering the house means liberating human souls that have been in bondage to Satan, blinded in unbelief, and enslaved in sin and death. Jesus is going to come and take people out of Satan's house and put them into his own house. His own kingdom of everlasting light and life. Why would Satan let that happen? Why would Satan let Jesus come into this world and take people into the kingdom of heaven and and redeem them and give them life, transfer them from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of heaven. Why would Satan let that happen? The reason he lets it happen is because he's powerless to stop it because, to use Jesus' words, he's bound. He's bound. He has been for the past 2,000 years. He's prevented from stopping the gospel from spreading to the ends of the earth. He's prevented from stopping the church from being built. He's prevented from deceiving the nations into gathering together to destroy the church and the people of God. But there's coming a day, Revelation 20 reveals to us, when Satan will be let loose, when Satan will be let off his chain for a little while, it says. For a period of time relatively short compared to the whole age that we're living in now where he's bound. And that during this time when Satan is let loose, he will do exactly that. He will deceive the nations. There will be a great falling away of people who call themselves Christians. Second Thessalonians talks about that, filling in even more detail. The persecution of the church will become global because all of the nations of the world will become 
absolutely violently intolerant of Christianity, hostile towards Christians to the point of persecuting them unless they renounce their faith and capitulate and compromise and cooperate with, with the state, with the beast, with this transnational, global, satanic agenda to destroy the church, the bride of Christ. But of course, none of that's going to succeed because Jesus will return. And when He does, He will cast Satan and all of the nations and everyone who has stood against Him into the lake of fire. So, with all of that, other Scripture from Matthew 12 and 2 Thessalonians 2 and Revelation 20 and 2 Peter 3 and lots of other places supporting and supplementing and interpreting the things that Jesus reveals here in Matthew 24, here's what we see. Here's what we know. Because Scripture interprets Scripture. What we see is that in verse 8, Jesus is describing this long period that we're in now where, where His disciples are going to endure all kinds of trials and tribulations and sorrows and sufferings, even persecutions. But during that whole age, there's going to be great protection Because as bad as it is, Satan's bound. And so as we run the race with endurance and persevere unto the end and preach the gospel, God will build His church. And He'll provide protection for His people in this world before the end. And the typical things that happen in this world during this whole time are not in and of themselves signs that the end has come. They're just characteristics of the world and the age in which we live. That's, a, that's an age of tribulation and of protection. Now look at verse 9. What's the first word in verse 9? Then, right? After, right? After the long age of tribulation and protection, so far 2,000 years long in, in actual calendar years, after that, whenever it happens, there's going to be a change. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. Who? Who's going to do that to the disciples of Jesus? Well, keep reading. And you will be hated by all, all nations for my namesake. After the long age of tribulation and protection, there's going to come a time when Christians everywhere in this world will be hated by all nations. Sound familiar? Revelation 20. That's what happens when Satan, who is currently bound, is let loose for a little while to deceive all the nations into surrounding the saints of God, waging war against them and trying to eradicate them and destroy them outright, and there won't be anywhere to flee from it. I mean, during this season of history that we're in now, 2023, Christians are already being persecuted all around the world. They always have been since Jesus rose and ascended. But there have always been and continue to be nations in this world that are not outright hostile to Christians, especially to the point of decreeing our death just for being Christians. America's one of them, right? I mean, America's going off the rails more and more and more. But it's not yet a nation that seeks to kill anyone and everyone just for standing in the name of Jesus. And it is a nation. It is still a place among the other nations still in the world where Christians who are being persecuted in other places can come here and find shelter. 
Well, one day, when Satan is let loose, that's all going to change. The whole attitude of every single nation in the world, including this one, is going to change against Christians. And they'll all conspire together to try to destroy you just for saying that you're a follower of Jesus. That is a sign that Satan has been let loose and that the end is near. Then look at verses 10 and 11. And then many will fall away. They won't be able to handle the heat of that persecution because their faith isn't real. It's only nominal. And they'll say, this isn't worth it. I'm not going to call myself a Christian if this is what it costs. And they'll fall away. And they'll actually join with the nations in the persecution of the church like horrifically, right? Jewish people did in Poland and other countries joining the Nazis and selling out their countrymen. That's going to happen in a mass scale. Many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. In 2 Thessalonians 2, Thessalonians 2 Paul talks about the rise of, of someone or something called the Antichrist. The Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages taught that that's a person, a human individual. The Protestant Church, on the other hand, in the time of the Reformation, believed and taught that it wasn't an individual, it was going to be a religious institution. And they claimed that the, the, there would be this religious institution that claimed the authority of Christ, but ended up leading all kinds of people away from Christ and into false teaching and false gospel and destruction. Well, whatever it is, or he is, there's going to be a massive apostasy, a massive falling away of people who profess Christ, but don't actually possess true faith in Christ, and they'll be led astray by this antichrist. That's the same thing Jesus is talking about here. Verse 10 talks about the massive falling away, the apostasy. Verse 11 describes the deception that they're all going to fall into as they worship and follow this Antichrist instead of Christ Himself. And because of that, verse 12 says, globally, lawlessness will be increased. Things are not going to get better and better and better. Lawlessness will be increased and the love of many will grow cold. People who once seemed to love God, people who once seemed to love Jesus and love the truth and love the church will suddenly grow very cold because of the growing persecutions and the growing pleasures of unrighteousness in the world and because the nations will exert all kinds of pressure to deny Jesus and to stand against the church. So all of this that's being described here, this massive tribulation and persecution that every single nation of the world is going to unleash on Christians and the church, the bride of Christ, the massive deception of Antichrist and false prophets and false Christs and teachers, the massive apostasy of people who professed faith but didn't actually possess it and are going to get lured away and end up joining in the persecution of the bride. All of this is the kind of tribulation that will mark the end of days when Satan gets let off his chain and loosed. Now, I don't think we're quite there yet, historically. 
Sometimes I wonder if it's starting. Maybe it is, but I don't think we're quite there yet, especially because there are still nations that remain tolerant of Christianity and that aren't violently antagonistic against the church. We, we praise God, still live in one of those countries. But we're heading there, aren't we? The truth of Jesus is becoming less and less tolerated now. The gospel is becoming less and less tolerated now. People are starting to suffer for their faith and for standing firm for God's Word, aren't they? We're heading there, right? Where Things are heading in the very direction that Jesus said they would 2,000 years ago. Current history in the 21st century is a fulfillment of prophecy that was given 2,000 years ago. Here's what John says in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18. Again, he wrote this a long time ago and he said, Children, it is the last hour. Already back then. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, 2 Thessalonians 2, be sure that now many Antichrists have already come and therefore we know that it's the last hour. Everything's aiming towards this grand culmination. John said 2,000 years ago and we're in the middle of that. Maybe the Antichrist of 2 Thessalonians 2, whatever or whoever it or he might be, maybe it's yet to come, but it's clear that many Antichrists, anticipating the ultimate one, have already come and are already in this world today. Many voices, many forces, many world powers and authorities, both in the religious realm and in the civic governmental realm, false teachers and wicked world rulers, are shaking their fists at Christ and raging against His righteousness and persecuting His people more and more even now. And all of this wickedness and rebellion and opposition is going to come to a grand crescendo one day, maybe soon, when Satan is let loose off his chain and all the nations of the world will agree finally together on one thing. Because they'll be deceived by Satan and conclude that the most important thing in the world is to rid it of Christianity and the church of Jesus Christ. And there won't be anywhere to run from it. But, verse 13 and 14, Jesus, the faithful, almighty bridegroom, gives us these great words of encouragement and hope right here at the end of the section. Hope for the waiting bride who knows now that the world is full of this trouble and it's only going to get worse and this is what we have to look forward to when Satan is let off his chain. How is the bride going to remain safe? Well, here, verse 13 and 14, is the bridegroom's great words of hope to the faithful bride. The one who endures to the end will be saved. And the gospel of this kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So there, in verse 13, there's the mark of the true believer in Jesus Christ. It's not the person who says, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, but does whatever they want in their life, and lives like the world lives, and indulges in the kinds of sin and depravity that the world loves, but that God hates. That's not a Christian. The Christian is the one who endures until the end, perseveres in holiness and obedience and growing faith and rejection of sin and worldliness and godlessness and immorality and falsehood 
No matter what the cost, no matter if it means being persecuted or even put to death, they persevere until the end. That's the mark of the true believer in Jesus Christ. In this world where deception and turmoil and upheaval and suffering and sorrow and tribulation and temptation are the norm, as the whole world groans with the pains of childbirth, in this world where Satan is bound but will be let loose, and then all hell will break loose against Christ's followers, those who belong to him are the ones who will endure until the end. Because even if it means being burned at the stake, it's worth it to gain Christ. They won't fall away. And the beauty of his holiness will radiate off of them because the allure of the world's wickedness matters nothing to them. They won't compromise when the powers and authorities of this world conspire together to demand that we accept their values, that we accept their ideals, that we accept their definitions of truth and goodness and justice over God's, over the true Christ's. Now, people who say, they're, say that they're Christians, they're already doing all of this compromising, aren't they? They're happy to claim his name, but they're not happy to count the cost of following him. They're not happy to lose the sin that they love. They're not happy to endure the suffering that may come from being a follower of Jesus. And in mass, people are being led astray already. They're falling away from the truth of Jesus Christ. And they're living in error. They're living in falsehood. They're embracing the lies and the perversions of Satan and of this world, even now where it's not even that hard to call yourself a Christian and stand firm yet. The worst kinds of pressure and persecution are still to come. So imagine when that happens, when Satan's let off his chain, imagine how many are going to fall away. When all the nations of the world demand our submission or else they'll kill us and our children, imagine how many people will fall away because Something matters to us more than Jesus does. Those who endure to the end will be saved from the wrath of God which is to come and which will pour down when Jesus comes at the end. Do not let Satan lure you, Christians. Don't let this world deceive you, followers of Jesus. Stand firm on the only sure foundation of the Word of God. Close your eyes and your ears to the lies and to the deceptions of the world and the flesh and the devil. And keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. He's not just the author of your faith. If you keep your eyes fixed on Him, He'll finish your faith and help you finish the race. Stand in the strength of His might. Because here's why. As fierce as the beast is, the nations of the world, as fierce as they are and as ferocious as Satan himself is, is, even when he's off his chain, as ferocious as he is, John's words in 1 John 4, 4 are truth with a capital T. Little children, you are from God and you have overcome them, the world, the flesh, the devil, because he who is in you Christ's Holy Spirit, he who is in you is greater than he who is in this world. Greater by an infinite measure, right? 
and as we keep our eyes fixed on him and as we strive in his strength and stand firm for his truth and for the gospel, the light of the gospel will continue to shatter even the deepest darkness of this wicked world. It'll spread to the ends of the earth even after Satan is let loose. Christ will continue to plunder Satan's house. The church will continue to be built and the gates of hell themselves will not prevail against it, Jesus promises. And then the end will come. If you're living in these days, you, you might have to suffer some. If Satan gets less lo- lets loose, you're going to suffer even more. Endure until the end and then the end will come because Christ will come. Your bridegroom will come and he will rescue you out of this evil age and he will save you from the wrath that he's going to pour down on all those who shook their fists at him. And he's going to make all things new. And then together we will reign with him forever and ever and ever if in his strength we endure to the end now. And we'll look back and we'll say, everything we suffered in that world was a momentary light affliction compared to this great glory that we'll never have to say goodbye to. That will never end. Amen? Amen. Let's pray to our God together today and then let's sing praises to Jesus. Our God and our Father, again, help us to understand. Help us to believe. And help us to follow these words of Jesus knowing what this world is that we live in and what is characteristic of it and what is to come. Father, help us stand firm. Help us remain faithful. Help us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Help us run the race in Your divine strength. Help us endure and persevere until the end. Help us be faithful lights in the darkness and salt in this corrupt world. And use your church and build your church, we pray. Father, help us know that Christ is all. That we don't need anything if we have Him. And help our whole lives be devoted to His glory and to His kingdom and to His righteousness. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.